0: Good evening everyone. In last week's reading from the Torah that we read on Saturday morning, in the Torah portion that we read last Saturday morning uh, the people are still at the foot of the mountain and God um, speaks to Moses and tells him uh, what is termed the mishpatim. The mishpatim, usually translated as judgments, but really it means things of justice, right? the just things. And he tells uh, God tells Moses um, to tell the people how they are to run a just society. Um, and at the almost at the very end of that list of just things, uh, we hear the following. I'll read it in Hebrew and then translated it and then translate it et Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce. And on the seventh year, and usually this is translated, uh, let the land lie unplowed and fallow. Or let it rest and lie fallow so that the poor may eat. So I want to take a second and look at the words tishmitena unitashta, let it rest and lie fallow. Um, I think the best, course, the word tishmitena is the word from which uh, the year, the, the word Shmita comes. Shmita is the sabbatical year, right? The seventh, every seven years there's a sabbatical year, and actually this year uh, is one of those sabbatical years. What does Tishmetena mean? I think it, the best translation would be "let go of it, let it go, Nateshta, leave it." So really, the Bible is saying, the sev- on the seventh year, you should let it go and you should leave it. Let let the land go. <laughs> Don't hold on to it, um, so that the poor can eat. And really, I think what the Torah is asking us uh, is that even though, of course, we have possessions and um, in biblical times and still today many of us possess land on which we grow things, the Torah is asking us to recognize um, that what we have is not really ours, Um, rather what we have is something that we hold possession of to the degree that we can be good stewards of the land, and in order that we be good stewards of the land. And it's important to understand that being a good steward of the land doesn't only mean taking good care of the land, uh, but taking care of everyone who lives. Uh, on the earth so that they can benefit from what we grow on the land. And that's really what the practice of Shemitah, the sabbatical year, uh, is asking us to remember. Um, Tonight's lecture, uh, Mark Winnie, who I'll introduce in a second, tonight's lecture uh, is um, designed to help us understand in what ways uh, we have yet to meet the challenge and the obligation that the Torah sets before us uh, in giving us the just thing of the sabbatical year. Um. So before I um, call up Mark Winnie, I wanted to uh, offer a couple of thank yous. First of all, um, thank you very much to Karen Fleisch um, and to David Silver for uh, offering the workshops, um, and also thank you very much to the Trisha staff for all the work that you have put in and continue to put into this uh, series. Uh, I'm also so appreciative that some of our uh, friends and new friends uh, from some different organizations that are helping to do the work are here tonight, and I want to particularly mention our contingent here from New Jersey. I want to kind of out yourselves? Uh, these women uh, work for an organization called America, America's Grow and Grow, uh, which uh, what? Grow a row. America's oh. Grow a row. Yes, that's what it says. America's Grow a row, which is an organization in New Jersey uh, that grows and gleans and distributes um, food, and that's we're so pleased that you do the work and that you're here to share that with us. Uh, Which also reminds us of our um, brother or sister organization in Israel, Leket, which we have information about um, outside uh, that does similar work in Israel. Um, And there are cards out there, information for people who are interested in um, using uh, contributions to Leket as um, Purim cards. So if you don't like having to send out all sorts of Purim things and you'd rather uh, use the opportunity to um, help Uh, feed the poor in Israel, you can do that through Leket, and there's information outside. And I also wanted to mention um, Ben Block, uh, who's here from the Met Council on um, Jewish Poverty, and uh, there's also information about that organization outside, so thanks so much for joining us. Um, Next week, does everybody have a flyer that looks like this on the table? Can you all put one in your hand? We have more if there's not one for your hand, but everybody hold one. Okay, I want to tell you what's on it, and then I want to ask you to take it and leave it someplace, okay? So what's on it is the program for next week, a very, very important film at 6 o'clock. Uh, for those who can make it at that early hour, at 6 o'clock we have a film, A Place at the Table, which is a recent 2012 documentary um, that looks at the issue of hunger and food insecurity, uh, both through the lives of people who are struggling with this um, and also with insights um. From experts in the field, uh, really, really uh, enlightening and important film. Uh, and after that, at 7:45, we have uh, what I think will be a, a delightful and also challenging lecture uh, by Lizanne Finston and Pam Johnston, Johnson. Johnson, um, and they will talk. Um, both uh, Pam is somebody who herself experienced um, and struggled with uh, hunger and food insecurity. Lizanne. Um, has worked in that field for many years, along with Pam, who now works in that field. And they will both talk about the work that they've done and also uh, end the series off by giving us really practical uh, suggestions as to how we can engage in the work. So I hope that people will be able to come back. Whether or not you can, please leave this flyer someplace. so um, I'm really delighted to introduce Mark Winnie, and um, even more delighted that he was able to make it because yesterday, uh, based on where he was flying from, the weather was making that look iffy, so I'm super delighted that he's here. You have his bio on the program, uh, which you got if you didn't get one, you can get on the way out. I'm not going to take more time by uh, reading it. Uh, just to mention that Mark has written a couple of books, and one of them, which I've read, and which is a really, really uh, important book, is called Closing the Food Gap. It is for sale outside. for the really bargain price of $10 so if you're interested on the way out you can pick up a copy and without further ado, I want to invite Mark to speak. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. I uh, am honored that you invited me to participate in this event. I'm really impressed by the series you have underway and your the challenge that you've taken on to Engage around the subject of hunger and food insecurity and other food problems in the United States today, of which there are many. Um, also, you're from New Jersey? And that's where I grew up. Yeah. So, uh, thank you. Thank you so for supporting yeah. me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you too? Yeah. I got just I got one of on my old this guy taught how to play basketball here, Morrison, uh, he's from New Jersey too. So, uh, good to have a good. Hometown crowd is into that job. So good. I'm from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, I moved there about 10 years ago. And uh, having worked in uh, Hartford, Connecticut for 25 years, running an organization called the Hartford Food System. And it gave me an opportunity to really engage very closely in a low-income community around a a series of really serious problems, uh, which manifested themselves, you might say, through Uh, not having enough food to eat, not having enough money with which to buy food, and often not having enough places to be able to actually shop for food, even if people did have money, Uh, areas that we later came to call food deserts. And while I watched people and worked with people who were indeed hungry, uh, I also began to watch people get larger. Um, ob- Obesity became um, a much more serious issue over this course of 25 years, in fact. That would bet became really the major threat or perhaps an extension or relationship to hunger and food insecurity. we we kind of come to, to use this terminology, food insecurity in the United States, to describe a situation which generally is not as severe as the kind of hunger that we typically see in. Uh, developing nations. Um, I just I took note of your seventh year letting the land lie fallow, and that that's related to feeding the poor. And I think it's very interesting. The number is interesting, uh, for obvious reasons. But one in seven Americans are considered food insecure or hungry. So interesting. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but it's maybe worth noting. I did want to say before I move on that um, I know Liz Ann Finston quite well, and you're going to be very lucky to hear her talk next week. I would strongly encourage you to come. I've worked with a lot of people around the country over the years on food issues, food, uh, on food insecurity, on in- engaging people in a community to try to solve their own problems. And Liz Ann is perhaps, I think, one of the best examples that I've come across. If there was a, you know, if we had a, an Oscars night or an Emmy award for people in this field, she would definitely be one of my nominees. So uh, definitely take the time to check her out. Uh, her work in New Jersey, where I when she was working there, was really top notch. So a great example, great model. Um, all right, so what I am gonna do, my task this evening, is to try to walk you through some of the ideas uh, that I have been working on and many other people have been working on uh, that are based on largely on my experience and the input that I've had from other people over the years with respect to this question of hunger and food insecurity, uh, obesity and overweight, and what exactly has been our response as a nation Um, And I am going to focus just on U.S. issues, domestic, what we might call domestic hunger. I'm not going to really be touching on anything international. Um, And I I want to sort of bring up what we have done, but also what we have not done. Because I think what we have not done is really um, very much of an underlying reason why we have not been able to solve this problem of hunger and food insecurity. In the United States. After many, many years of trying, after spending what now would be in the trillions of dollars, uh, we have not yet really made much of a dent. So I have a few sort of opening remarks, and then I have you all have, I think, a PowerPoint that I, our uh, we, we technology, it was probably my fault that I didn't, I just assumed everybody did PowerPoint now. Is that what I mean? So <laughs> even though I don't really. Uh, I know. I don't, really, I don't really like it myself, but, I, but I, I've gotten, it's like everybody seems to expect it, so I do it, but I give you, I've given you some of my major points here. Okay, there you go. I got started in this field uh, as an 18-year-old, as a freshman in college, um, and at the time, that would be the late 1960s, I uh, had my very first experience with hunger wasn't a personal one. It wasn't the fact that I was hungry. I grew up in a very privileged environment in, in uh, New Jersey and the sub in the suburb just not too far from here. And um, so I had no direct experience, obviously, of hunger. Um, my experience came as a freshman uh, when I first saw these photographs of starving children in Nigeria in what was uh, Biafra, the province of, of Biafra in, the, in Nigeria in the late 1960s. And there was a horrific famine that was underway. And like a lot of people who experience something that's shocking, that's visually shocking, in fact makes them sometimes physically ill, we wanted, I wanted to react, I wanted to act, I wanted to do something. I felt that you know, no matter what it was, I just had to get out there and do something. Um, and I think that this is sort of typical of a lot of people. You know, we see a problem, we see something that, particularly one that frightens us or or just makes us angry or frustrated, uh, some degree of despair, and we want to do something. Well, what I did is I decided that I was going to raise some money from the students at my college and the faculty and use that in some way for famine relief in Biafra. And so I think I raised, as I recall, all of $600 um, which I sent promptly to an international relief agency and I honestly don't know whatever became of that um, that money. I made the rounds at campus, kind of had my hat out. I uh, gained a few admirers and I probably made a few enemies along the way. I even I think I had a couple of dates with women who otherwise would have ignored me. Um, but you know, learning early on that good deeds can sometimes be rewarded. Uh, but I did something, and I felt good about it. But as time went on, and um, you know, like I suppose like every young person who you know, at the time, uh, and like all young people, knew more then than they do now as adults, um, thought that I was doing the right thing, that I was sure I was doing the right thing. And in fact, there probably wasn't anything else that I could do. Um, but as I became more interested in the subject, I started to apply some some analysis, some reflection. I began to ask more questions. I began to become more involved locally in food issues, so that my my learning group, my learning curve group, I began to act differently, and began to think about the problems differently. So that's what I'm. That's where I want to start off. I want to pick up from this young guy, looking at the world um, somewhat naively but passionately about a situation that was shocking. And where did it where did it begin in the United States? And where have we gone? And what are we doing about it? So I'm going to pick up right away with this uh, PowerPoint handout, if you want to just follow along. So what I'm talking about are food gaps. Of course, that's what I named my first book, Closing the Food Gap. And when I talk about food gaps, I'm talking about hunger, food insecurity. Um, I'm also talking about our reaction to those things, including the um, large increase in participation in the SNAP program, which has also had formerly been referred to as food stamps. SNAP meaning Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Um, I want to be taught food gaps also include the fact that we have much higher rates of overweight, obesity, and diet-related illnesses among people who are food insecure. Um, I want to be talking also about the low-wage economy. You might call it the income gap, the inequality that exists very starkly in the United States and how that, inf- how that affects good people's ability to be able to buy food and eat well. Um, I also want to talk about the lack of food democracy and community engagement. You know, this is a term that we don't use very much, but, but food democracy to me means that we all as citizens have the opportunity to participate in some aspect of our food system—not just buying food or making decisions about which food items to buy, but also to influence our policymakers, our decision makers. You know, we, how many of you have heard of the Farm Bill? I think you, would you talk about that tonight? No, yes. oh, I.
0: That was too easy. <laughs> anyway,
1: how many of you heard, have heard about uh, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act? All right. So many of you know that there are those are sort of our biggest pieces, you might say, of public policy when it comes to food and nutrition in the United States. The Farm Bill and childhood or child nutrition. Those are the, and the child nutrition um, reauthorization is now going to be start churning its way through Congress, whereas the Farm Bill process was completed with over the last year or so. So it's a good opportunity for us to be influential. But there's a whole other level of policy that I have become more involved with, and that's at the local level and at the state level. In New York City, we've seen a lot of work on food policy and food issues. Food is a big deal, and as a result, um, elected officials are actually paying attention to food for the, you know, one of the first times and, well that I can never remember. Community engagement, meaning that how, does the, how do communities become involved in solving these problems? You know, not just the kind of the professional community of which I would consider myself one, but also the people who are actually affected themselves by these issues. Food gaps include uh, terminology or places that we refer to as food deserts and food swamps. How many of you have heard of food deserts? How many of you heard of food swamps? That's many, okay. Food deserts are basically places that don't have easy access to healthy and affordable food, these are underserved communities, underserved by by good quality retail. Um, food swamps are kind of the almost what happens when you a community changes when the uh, social and economic under underpinnings begin to collapse, when supermarkets have moved out, where there's not a good aren't good places to shop. What happens is we see an influx of unhealthy places to buy food. These are fast food places, fast food restaurants. Convenience stores, uh, places with high-priced processed food. So that's another part of the food gap. And one the last piece is the cl- is climate change. In other words, cl- we don't always think about climate change and you know increasing temperatures and everything that is all the fallout that has um, is related to that in the context of food and food systems. But there's very it's very much an impact and a connection when it comes to to climate change and our food system. So I would like to start, I'm always interested in how we got here and where we started from. And I could go back, I could have gone back a long, long way, but I decided just to start uh, right after World War II when, uh, because I'm interested in some of the contradictions that history seems to draw out and bring on us and make us think when we actually understand what happened. President Truman actually created the school lunch program. As you may know, this was done um, following World War II. Now, he did it partly because he thought that it was a good idea. He thought that children should be well fed. That seems obvious, but he was able to make it work politically because he knew as well, as did his generals and many others, that uh, there was a very high rejection rate during World War II from because of undernourished military recruits. In fact, it was the leading cause of rejection by recruits, poor recruits, during World War II. Um, Then uh, it's interesting, I think, to to link that to the fact that today, what is the leading reason for rejection from the military? It's obesity. Um, And I've always liked to say that I'm a very much of an ardent fan of world peace, but becoming too fat to fight is not the way to achieve it. (laughs) So we have this sort of two ends of the spectrum, undernourished during World War II, perhaps overnourished or overstuffed. Excuse me? badly over. badly So we see the relationship, in other words, between uh, diet, health, and national defense, and the political reaction in, in both cases. Now, John F. Kennedy is one of his very first administrative acts in 1961 when he took office was to create what is today the modern SNAP program or food stamp program. But he did it, again, because he was interested in the plight of the poor and people who didn't have enough to eat. But he also was upset that he had lost most of the farm states in the 1960 uh, presidential election. And he felt that the best way to politically respond to that was to um, provide additional demand or stimulation for farm goods, hence the food stamp program. We put more money in the pockets of the poor. That enables them to buy more food. That makes farmers happy. So it's kind of a deal. We might, you may have heard about this deal. It has been sort of ongoing even today, even as part of the farm bill, that um, we have to make sure that if we're going to do something to benefit the poor, there has to be an opposite and equal benefit, not necessarily like equal, but some significant benefit to those who are not poor, partic- particularly producers. I picked up this quote, the next quote here from um, um, uh, some re- research that I did, and it was really one of the first sort of public experiences, you might say, of hunger. While Kennedy and Truman and certain you know, a few activists, social activists at the time, in the 50s and 60s, were aware that there were people in this country that didn't have enough to eat. The general public didn't really know what was going on until there was testimony given at the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition in 1970. And I thought, you know, this was perhaps the most striking one by an Army captain. They had, uh, this, the committee, had, for some reason, had selected a couple of recent West Point graduates to go out and try to look at what was going on in areas around the country that were, not, were poor and not getting enough food. And so this, this testimony, I was stunned seeing children staring at walls because they weren't getting food. They were literally dying. Now, this is a West Point graduate captain in the U.S. military, and this was enough testimony to be able to push the Senate along to increase the, the number of food programs and response of the U.S. government and also raise the public awareness at the same time. I would say that what that army captain experienced was very much what I experienced as a freshman in college two years before that, um, when I saw the photographs of starving children in the Africa. Now here's another one other little, I'm not. it's a bit of a contradiction, it, was, it came as a surprise to me Many of you perhaps have read or certainly know of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, written in the early uh, 20th century. But um, you know, S- Sinclair did not go out there to beat up on the meat industry in order to improve public safety, in other words, to reduce foodborne illnesses that were associated with the poor slaughter and handling of, of beef, of, of livestock. He was concerned <laughs> about the plight of workers. Who were in that industry? That was what he, that was the story he was trying to tell. So, um, the but the public, interestingly enough, decided they were picky. They wanted they were concerned about the quality of the food they were eating. They weren't necessarily concerned about the workers who were doing that that very terrible, low-paying, dangerous uh, work. Um, and to me, that situation has continued. More of us are concerned about the safety of our food. Than we are about the safety and the health and the livelihoods of those who make some kind of living from raising our food, processing our food, etc. So let me see. I want to take a look at the measures of food insecurity and hunger. Um, I don't know. If this isn't really. I don't want to get too much into the weeds on these things, but we started to actually measure hunger in the 1990s. We didn't have any actually have a measure of it until the, about 1995 or 96, when the U.S. Department of Agriculture decided that they wanted to have some way of really determining how many hungry people are and what act actually constituted hunger. And this is where the idea of food insecurity and security also came up because. They found that while people, very few people, were experiencing anything remotely resembling starvation in the United States, they did, um, they they were certainly experiencing shortages of food, and um, you know, did not have the means with which to purchase food, and um, so there was certainly a problem. But they weren't quite sure what to call it and how to measure it. I actually participated for a brief period on a committee that was putting together the criteria for determining what constituted hunger, how we would measure it, what kind of surveys we would conduct. So in fact, we started with these measures. And uh, that's when you see, when you hear these numbers, while wow, there's some there's 14.3 percent of us are, are in the US are uh, just about one in seven um, are food insecure. Uh, it comes from this you know, very deliberate process, mostly with a lot of academic input. Um, and, it's, and it's based on an annual census that's done by the USDA and the, and the uh, Census Bureau. So it's a fairly reliable um, determination of the number of people who are hungry. And the, this category called very low food security was originally hunger. When it was when these standards were first developed, uh, we called it food insecurity and hunger. And about something like 14 percent of the population was Food insecure or hungry, and then about five percent was was actually hungry. But I think, for political reasons, frankly, they chose, to, as far as I can determine, and this happened that there usually happen these changes that would try to make a problem, a social and economic problem in this country, not look so bad. Usually, took place in Republican administrations. Now, it may not surprise any of you, but. Um, That has been the experience. In this case, um, they decided to change the terminology from hunger to very low food security. So now uh, you can see what the numbers look like. To me, the the story has been this, that in the year 2000, there were 10% of us who were um, considered food insecure, 3% very low food security. But today, we have over 14% and over 5%. 49 million people in the U.S. based on the most recent data. Um, In 2004, participation in the food stamp program was about 25 million Americans or 7 percent. Just last year, while certainly there was the impact of the the recession, 47 47 million or 15 percent of the population was considered, um, was actually participating in the food stamp program. This is, represents 72, $72 billion annually. Another 50, uh, almost 52% of the infants that are born in this country now participate in the WIC program, another federal program, women, infant, and children. I'll, later on, I'll note that over 50% of the, yeah, 52% of the infants now receive WIC. Um, over 50% of our public schools around the uh, states the public schools, over 50% of the states, rather, have uh, 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 over 50% of their students, excuse me, uh, participate in uh, free and reduced price lunch uh, programs, which are also a federal subsidy. So you can just see how the problem has grown. In spite of all the efforts we've made to try to end or at least reduce food insecurity, it doesn't look that we like we've made a lot of progress, at least if we look at these numbers. Um, food banks, of course, have been another manifestation of the response to hunger, the private response or perhaps the charitable response, some might say. But you can see as well, just take one example, Los Angeles Food Bank went from 32 million pounds of food that it gave away in 2000, 10 years, 11 years later, almost doubled. At the same time, we're experiencing record levels of hunger and food insecurity. We're also seeing the growth in obesity and diet-related illness. Um, I don't want to repeat all the numbers, other than to point out that we have seen enormous increases. I mean, if we look at 13 percent of Americans obese in 1994 and 30 percent obese today, I still don't know what happened. I still don't not sure what you know what I can what I can point to that's responsible for that kind of growth. And this is really our, some would say, it's even a greater threat to our public health than tobacco is at this point. So we have to take this, this question very, very seriously. And the rates are always higher among uh, racial and ethnic minorities. Uh, in my state in New Mexico, we survey annually the uh, uh, obesity rates among children. And we look at uh, kindergarten and third grade And the number that we have, and we have a very large uh, Native American population in New Mexico. 30% of our Native American children are obese. 30%. 23% of our uh, Hispanic population, which is a very large population in New Mexico, is obese. Only 9% of our white population is obese. So you can see really vast gaps, vast disparities in our, in health in this country. And these numbers, obesity, the health-related problems associated with obesity are always higher among food aid recipients. These numbers I I just came across recently that, you know, of people receiving aid of one kind or another, food aid, 33 percent are diabetic, 58 percent have very high blood pressure compared to the general population of just 10% and 31%. So um, again, when we talk about hunger and we talk about other food gaps, we have to be considering these disparities that are based on income, they're based on race, they're based on ethnicity. Um, The terminology that's sometimes used in the the community is is equity. What are the equity questions associated with with food health? Um, let's see. Make sure I get my pages in the right order. Um, food insecurity and obesity. Uh, just continuing. Um, I just I just came across a study that was done actually in Hartford uh, by some associates that I used to work with that found that the food insecure actually eat half the servings of fresh fruits and vegetables that food secure people eat. Um, and I think that this is important um, because as we look at the kind of food that that people are buying, whether it's with whether that's with SNAP benefits or the kind of food that's distributed through food pantries and food banks, we have to pay particular attention to what people are eating and the kind of food that is being just what's being purchased and what's being um, given away. We do not see enough healthy food getting out there, whether it's through the food banking system, or we don't see enough healthy food choices being made by lower income people who participate in these federal food assistance programs. At the same time, I don't think we're getting a huge amount of cooperation from the food industry. There's been some effort by, uh, do I do largely to arm-twisting by the first lady, Michelle, Michelle Obama, uh, to get the food industry to reduce the calories in food, reduce the salt, reduce the sugar, reduce the fat, that's particularly in processed food products. They've, there's been some some progress, but not a lot. And we still see the industry spending four billion dollars annually marketing unhealthy food to children. Uh, I, I find that, I guess, reprehensible, that we'd be Trying to get young people, you know, under from like four to three years old up to 14 years old, hooked on unhealthy food in the same way that the tobacco industry was very interested in getting young people hooked on cigarettes. Um, a good news story. Just got to throw this in. I like good news every now and then. You know, people like me better when I have good news for them. But uh, one thing that ha- one thing I came across just last year. Uh, One of these wonderful discoveries is a a doctor, uh, a pediatrician down in uh, central Virginia. Her name is um, Namali Fernando, Namali Fernando. And uh, she goes by the brand name of Dr. Yum. And uh, Dr. Yum is a pediatrics practice that focuses on food. She discovered through the course of her fairly conventional pediatrics practice that 70% of her, child, of her patients had some kind of diet-related illness. About half of those, or a little less than half, were related to overweight and obesity, but the rest were due to allergies, um, you know, other eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia. Um, 70% of what she was treating was related to the diet, to the food choices. And she said, i got to make changes. I can't keep doing this. Why should I keep you know, doing immunizations and checking earaches and everything else uh, when you know, my kids are basically starving to death? Very indirectly, but they were. So I went to see her uh, practice uh, this spring and over half of her office is actually a kitchen. It's actually a teaching kitchen. So she brings the children in along with their parents and she teaches them how to cook. And she teaches them about healthy eating. And she has something called, every Saturday morning, she has something called a healthy pajama party breakfast. And the kids come in their pajamas, and they sit there. And, they, and she prepares and works with them to learn how to prepare a healthy breakfast. And uh, there's lots of fun things and games. There's a huge uh, garden outside of her uh, office that is part of her practice. Is
0: it a stage funded? No.
1: It's all it's all private practice. No other than other than whatever insurance sometimes might be, you know, being, but there's no other uh, government or foundation support. She's actually developed a curriculum that that is being uh, food and health related curriculum that's being used in the public schools in that area of Virginia. So it just shows you that you know there's a term that we use called food is medicine. Food is medicine. And if we think about it that way, and we think about the kind of food we're putting in our bodies, you can see why we're sick. So many of us are sick, because we're not looking at that relationship between the food choices we're making, what we're ingesting, and then what is happening to us. A few quick notes on on climate change and and food and farming. now these are important considerations. This sort of in our bigger sort of maybe global context certainly certainly important. However, as we think about who is going to be who are the winners going to be and who are the losers going to be as our climate changes, and I would guess anything that the poor uh, in as in most cases will be the losers in climate change. But just look at some of these numbers. 60 percent of the U.S. was in drought in 2012. Um, right now, California is experiencing an epic drought um of biblical proportions i would say and they are the leading producer of fresh fruits and vegetables in this country you know what does that say for us what does that portend as we think about how we begin to act uh, in the future uh, there's a very important association between uh, greenhouse gases our big contributor to climate change and uh and water use um, the amount, just think about the food that we eat and what that means for, for water in the future because there will be less water and less water, and water, food just doesn't grow without water. 11,000 gallons of water per ton of vegetables compared to 140,000 gallons per ton of beef. I've started eating less beef, um, in fact the only beef I eat now is grass-fed. From uh, a ranch uh, that I know very well in New Mexico, and I kind of give you some of the right. Looking below, you can see some of the numbers related also to the distance that our food travels and mm. what the what that means in terms of energy consumption. Yeah. You know, local grass-fed beef that I'm buying in in New Mexico is only traveling 300 miles. Uh, that's everything. You know, from raising the animal to processing the animal to showing up in my freezer. The uh, tri- you know the conventional way. Takes a rather ungodly trip of, of 5,340 miles. It's like going from uh, uh, be like going from what uh, New York to uh, London, I think, to uh, in order to get my beef. So we have to find a better way to do that. So, how have I want to get into the discussion about how we have chosen to act? You know, we have these numbers. We have, you know, record levels of food insecurity. I also note that in in just about every compar- social economic comparison that you would make between the United States and most of the developed world, the 30, whatever, thirty-two uh, countries which are considered the among the most developed, we rank. Pretty close to last on food security, poverty, um, performance in school, education. Um, most of the, I just found out the other day, most of the retired people in in the in the developed world, they get about 66, about two-thirds of their retirement income is derived from some equivalent of our Social Security system, some kind of pension or Social Security system. In the United States, it's 50%. So our elders are only can only count on getting 50% back in the form of Social Security compared to other countries, or two-thirds. So in other words, we are the most generous nation. In fact, we are just about the most stingy nation with regard to most indicators around public support and uh, related, related to social and economic factors. Um, <clears throat> so our biggest response has been food assistance. Um, now I call this poverty management because I think the cause of hunger is poverty. Food insecurity slash hunger equals poverty. However, instead of addressing it as a poverty pro- problem, we've addressed it as a poverty management problem, which means that we're going to feed people, we don't want people to be hungry you know we are you know a generous people in the sense that we don't want anyone to be hungry but we're not going to work that hard to try to solve the problem and therefore i call food assistance a poverty management program not a not a poverty solution in fact we've developed 15 i think it was actually 16 now i think we have a new one 16 separate U.S. Department of Agriculture food nutrition programs.
0: Now, that's how we do
1: things. We develop a program. We started with food stamps, and they moved to SNAP, WIC, half a dozen or so nutrition uh, school-related uh, nutrition programs. There's programs for the special food programs for the elderly. There's special food programs for Native Americans. Uh, there's after-school and child daycare uh, programs. Now they're all good. They all make an important contribution to people's to people's lives, yet none of them are solving any problems. They're they're managing poverty, mm-hmm. um, and at some point um, we made a, a change. It wasn't delivered. We didn't have a big debate about it. Uh, candidates can, candidates didn't get on television and go back and forth on this question of how we address these problems. But somehow the social contract was redefined so that. Private assistance um, became almost as important, perhaps more important, and certainly in many cases more visible than public assistance. And um, I, I heard there was some I had read an article on uh, on social psychology uh, the other day it was in the New York Times, and and they referred to something as the IKEA effect. I <laughs> said, "What does that mean?" You say, "Well, the IKEA effect is if you." Build something yourself. Take this piece of furniture and you build it yourself. You feel better about it, right? So, wow, I think I value that more because I built it rather than going to the store and buying a piece of furniture already made and bringing it home. I think that's, that's what we did more or less with food banks and food pantries is we actually began to say, I, as a volunteer, can become very active in a food bank and I can feel really good because I've put my hands on something and I've, I've done something concrete as opposed to trying to think about the social justice and the economic justice concerns related to hunger and food insecurity in the United States. Food banks have gone from zero in the 1970s to 206 today. When I say food banks, I'm talking about very large warehouse operations. There are about sixty thousand food pantries, uh, soup kitchens, you know that smaller level, more local level um, uh, emergency food response. Um, there were just a few thousand in the 1970s. There's been a huge increase, in other words, in our response to hunger, but at a private level. Not as a public problem that we have to take on and try to solve, but we decided we're going to address this problem through charity through a private response. And I thought one of the, one of the more interesting um, um, thoughts on this came from Olivier Deschuter who is the special, what's called the Special Rapporteur at the United Nations, who was assigned to look at food insecurity, poverty, famine, and so forth around the world. He's been on a mission for several years looking at this issue. And on regarding food banks, he says this, Food banks should not be seen as a normal part of a national safety net. They are charity-based, not rights-based. And they should not be seen as a substitute for the robust social safety nets to which each individual has a right. I think this idea of rights-based versus charity-based is a very significant one. What is the right of an individual to be able to feed him or herself? Uh, to be able to live that way. We don't really honor that right in the United States and the way, in the same way that it is done in most of the world. DeSchooter goes on to say that food banks play a very important role in identifying quickly and accurately how the safety net is broken. As such, they have a special obligation to report, as any good witness must, what they're seeing. So they're saying things are wrong. We're seeing all these people coming in here who are hungry, who need our help. But I don't see food banks speaking up aggressively about what they are seeing. They feel like they're obligated to provide more food. Um, Governments should, the shooter goes on to say, governments should not be allowed to escape their obligations because private charities make up for their failures. If you want to take a, a good look a look at a really interesting program, um, I would, I'd recommend a book called "The Stop," written by Nick Saul, uh, who is a Toronto uh, food advocate and organizer. Uh, Nick Saul has uh, started he got very very frustrated with food banks in Canada. He was saying that, you know, all we're doing is giving people lousy food, uh, empty calories. We're not doing anything at all to try to solve their problems. So he started this whole program called the Food Stop, which um, is expanding pretty rapidly throughout um, Canada, and it's much more of an empowering approach to helping people who are coming into a food bank. It gets them involved in actually producing food in in, in gardens, uh, in cooking programs as well. Um, actually it helps them learn how to stand up for themselves and speak up for their own needs and take responsibility and try to fulfill their own, their own rights. So uh, it's, uh, it's taken, I'll just a couple of, there's been quite a bit of praise for his approach. Uh, Naomi Klein has called it one of our most visionary movements for justice and equality. Chef Jamie Oliver, who came to visit the program, said it's amazing. I think you said it though with a British accent, so it probably doesn't sound the same. Amazing, does it what's that? How do you
0: spell the opposite
1: of Nick Saul? S A U L. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely check that one out if you want an alternative, really alternative idea of how to sort of approach these problems from a very much a grassroots level. The last thing I'm going to say, I think, on food banks is that in um, just prior to my book coming out in 2007, I was, you know, like every author, I'm out there trying to promote myself, and so I had an opportunity to write an op-ed for the Washington Post, and um, I decided I was going to look particularly at this question of why food banks have become such a dominant force in the United States, but they don't seem to be solving the problem. and So I wrote that essay. and. Lo and behold, they put it like on the on the very top of the page on the opinion page of the Washington Post with a whole uh, above the fold uh, Andy Warhol soup cans cans soup cans spread across the top, and it was very cool. And, um, And I'm living in New Mexico, so I'm two hours behind, and my mother lives in Virginia. She and she's up early anyway, so she calls me up at 5 o'clock in the morning after she's just read out her copy of the Washington Post. She was very proud. However, I made I made a couple of mistakes. One is that I had this published just a few days before Thanksgiving, and the second was that I included my email address.
0: <laughs>
1: I got killed. Um, it was, uh, though, I mean, I got killed in the sense of There were over, according to the Washington Post, there were 80,000 hits on that article from from their website in uh, just the first three days. Um, I was able to do some surveying of the responses. It was interesting that about two thirds of the people agreed with me, more or less, that food banks had to change. They had a responsibility to be more aggressive in addressing the underlying problems of hunger, of not just giving out food day after day but actually trying to get down to the root causes. But um, it was an interesting experience for me, anyway, uh, but I do think it has helped to open some eyes. Um, There has been another approach which has been uh, partially successful and has begun to sort of, I think, build out um, our thinking a little bit on food and food systems, and it's called community food security. And the idea here is that we do focus on the food system that this is this complex network of, of uh, interrelationships that include health, the environment, the economy, um, many, many layers of our food system and, and our food lives, many dots, you might say, that are connected. Our natural resources, for instance, our water, our soil, You know, many, many different kinds of occupations. In fact, uh, food is the second or third largest uh, sector of most uh, local economies. Um, in, it's in, in many places that I've been, I've found that the particularly areas that are more, and more economically challenged, <laughs> the biggest economic sector is guess what? Take a guess what the biggest econ- in most sort of most of your you know, medium sized communities or medium to large communities that don't have, say, a dominant, like not like Detroit that has the. The auto industry, but take a guess what the number one sector is? Economic sector.
0: Agriculture. What? Agriculture. No. That's the- health. Oh yeah.
1: Health is our biggest economic sector. And I think, geez, you know, is, why has it become like that? Why if there's a big, huge hospital and that health has be, become such a—that's why we have, you know, the Affordable Care Act. Um, among other things, that um, we have such a you know such a challenge in terms of health, and such a large part of that, of course is related to diet. So I keep thinking, well, if food was a bigger sector, you know if food was more prominent in our national economy and recognized for its relationship to health, and that food you know that that you know that food is medicine, if we understood that, maybe the health sector would decline in terms of its size. Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting? Actually shrink as food begins to ascend. Just a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we, we're looking also in, at community food security as, as, a, as a model for uh, engagement as well. It's a means as much as it is an ends. In other words, we want to be working directly with people in communities who are affected by food insecurity, by poor food access. So citizen participation and collaboration between many groups is very central to the community food security concept. We're very interested in the idea of justice, of equity, and sustainability in the food system. So when we're talking about food production particularly, we're talking about a balance in the relationship between what the what the uh, ecosystem is it capable of absorbing what our natural resources are capable of producing, and uh, you know, what, what in fact how much food we're able to actually get out of a piece of land. So these relationships are very much at the top of the, of the list and the concerns among, among those involved in food security. Um, a more equitable and local and sustainable food system begins to look like what has indeed happened over the last 20 or 30 years. We've seen an enormous rise in the number of farmer's markets, the number of community-supported agriculture farms. uh, Farm to school, getting food directly from farms to schools, uh, that, that number has grown significantly. Food hubs, which are basically distribution centers which aggregate food from a number of farmers within a region, usually for sale to larger institutions, have grown significantly. We've seen actually making, we've made a lot of progress in restoring uh, food deserts uh, with a number of financing projects that have been primarily supported by public, good public policy at the federal level and later at the state level. Food policy councils, which is something I'm very much involved with, have also grown. Um, These are local organizations, usually coalitions made up of multiple stakeholders from within a food system including people who are often affected by conditions of food insecurity and poor food access, who actually are there to try to get the policy of local government and state government more engaged in solving problems. So we are actually using policy, um, at, and we've seen, um, I think I have this on another slide, but yeah, the next slide is it over 2,000 cities, and this was based on a survey that was done by Michigan State University, Over. Actually, over 2,000 cities actually have three or more food policies in place. So in other words, it's action that is being taken at the local level and state level. So when people get discouraged about what's going on in Washington, I tell them, take a look at City Hall and take a look at state government. Um, Right here, I know, I mean, I've worked with a lot of great food activists here in New York. Um, And Brooklyn Food Forum, I think it was two or three years ago, had 5,000 people show up. I don't know if anyone here is from Brooklyn or attended those meetings. 5,000 people showed up uh, for a a one-day meeting on food, and they had to go find the biggest, they had to move it to like the biggest high school, I think, in auditorium in Brooklyn because there were so many people. There was The first ever mayoral food forum was held just prior to your last uh, mayoral election. 1,000 people showed up at that. All the candidates came to talk about what their positions were on food policy. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity at this level, very local level, to make some important changes. Um, So I'm not gonna go, but you can see there's many examples of actions that have been taken at the local level or state level from public transportation to trying to take the dollars that we are using now for public procurement, which means what's the food I buy in the school? What's the food that I buy for our correctional facilities? What's the food that I buy for hospitals? Because this is money that's already there and budgeted to buy food. Let's direct more of it to local sources and healthier sources, and let's put some stipulations on how that food is grown and how that farm labor is treated. You know, number, we, we have the power to do that, to actually use our regulations for good to provide more benefits um, you know, for our economy and for those who are in our food system producing our food. Um, so so let's get back to the question of you know poverty and, and hunger as I've said earlier, poverty basically equals hunger and food insecurity is the single best predictor of hunger and food insecurity and we spent but well, we spend over a hundred billion dollars a year on food assistance. No other country in the world makes such a commitment in terms of their approach to social welfare as the United States does when it comes to committing, so much money to mm-hmm. hunger. It's because all the other countries are putting money into many other kinds of social welfare programs that basically lift people okay. out of poverty. So we can see the numbers on income inequality. You, I'm sure you've seen this topic has been worked over pretty well in the press and I'm, I, I'm grateful for that. But I think that you know we have to remember what has happened to our economy. We've we've had this dumbing down of our of our economy over the over the past thirty or forty years, so that now half of all U.S. jobs pay less than thirty four thousand dollars a year. One quarter pay less than twenty two thousand dollars. Now twenty two thousand dollars. If you're a family of three and you're making twenty two thousand dollars a year, you're eligible for food stamps. So a quarter of, of America is eligible for food stamps. So, um, you know, it begins to tell you, tell a story about what is going on in our economy and then what's going on with wages. You know, my God, you know, we can't lift the minimum wage in this country to something like 10, 10 an hour. Well, look at it. Look at the numbers. From 1968, this is when I, this is my summer job, uh, 1968, I was uh, working in a, for a, a landscaper in New Jersey. And that was my wage, two dollars and twenty cents an hour, and I and I felt rich. And I felt pretty rich uh, as a young person making that. And I actually I was because it was equal to ten dollars and ninety-five cents today. You know, it, it, you know, during looking at the current value. So um, I had some buying power at two twenty, but that's not the case anymore. Um, if we if our uh, if our minimum wage had kept pace with the increase in the wages of 1%, uh, the minimum wage would actually be $22 an hour right now in the United States. But look at how we compare to other developed nations, uh, France, Australia, Canada. Um, If we were able just to bring the minimum wage up to $10.10 an hour, we'd lift four to six million Americans out of poverty, and we would reduce the cost of SNAP by $4.5 billion. Now, think about this for a moment. The U.S. government and you, taxpayers, have been subsidizing low wages because those folks qualify for food stamps. They qualify for all kinds of other public assistance. In other words, we've kind of let the private sector off the hook. We've left the let the employers off the hook and have passed the buck back to the government and back to the public sector, and back to the taxpayer. Um, I tell, the, story, the story I tell, I, did, I was writing an article in uh, New Mexico about a uh, food stamp program there, and I had interviewed the director of a county, kind of a rural county, but a very large rural county, and uh, I was interviewing the director of the county food stamp program, and he said to me that he'd seen a huge increase in the number of applicants for food stamps over the last few months. And he couldn't figure out why, because he looked at the, the employment data for his county, and he saw that their employment unemployment rate, unemployment rate was only 2%. Figured, now how can I have an unemployment rate of 2% and I have so many people lining up for food stamps? Well, huh? Because
0: the wages are so low.
1: Yeah, because the two biggest employers were two large Walmart super centers most of their workers were eligible for the food stamp program because their wages were so low. So you and I were paying for, we're subsidizing America's largest and wealthiest retailer. Okay. Look at the impact, food chain workers. Food chain workers is the term we use to describe people who are you know make a living in some form or another from some aspect of the, of the food system. They could be farm workers, uh, they could be farmers, they can be people working at McDonald's. Um, they can be the people who are processing chickens in these horrible poultry slaughter facilities. Uh, food chain, they're the largest together, all that together, it's the largest occupational category in the United States. 15% of our, all of our workers are related to our food chain, you might say. The median wage is $9.65. Only 13% earn a living wage. Health insurance and sick days are rare. Uh, most places, they don't even allow six days. You don't get paid if you're sick. And uh, most, of course, are people of color. 52% of the fast food, fast food workers receive public assistance valued at $7 billion a year. So again, you know, we're providing that kind of subsidy, you might say, for McDonald's. And of course, I, I know I always, my, my friends hate this because they all love to eat at Chipotle's, when I tell them, you know, the two CEOs of Chipotle's each earned $25 million, which was 778 times the company's median salary—not the low, low wage, but the median salary. So I don't want to just keep nail, keep send, sending the old same nail into the coffin. But um, the question I have to ask is, why can't we change the course? Knowing all this, looking at the numbers, seeing that our our general approach to hunger and food insecurity has not been that effective. It's helped a lot, it's mitigated some terrible situations. And it's probably better, it's certainly better than nothing. But it hasn't eliminated the problem. We look at the economic inequalities in this country, and we see that we have vast resources. We see that we're the wealth still pretty close to the wealthiest nation on earth, yet we don't spend Anything like the rest of the world does on on public welfare programs, nor or social welfare programs, nor do we spend the money effectively. Um, and I, the question, you know, and this is my theory, my hypothesis. Some will argue with me and disagree with me. I know, but a good part of the problem, or a good part of the reason for our failure, has been the fact that our major lobby organizations who are our anti-hunger organizations in this country have only focused on the programs, on our federal programs or on the private programs. They have not focused on the underlying problems. Now this is important because these are the organizations that our policymakers hear from. They're the ones who go and they meet with our members of Congress, they meet with our, you know, meet with the senators and they advocate for food stamps and WIC and school meals and so forth. They also advocate for private assistance, such as the food stamps, or rather the uh, food banks. Feeding America is the nation's uh, you know, uh, co- um, coalition, you might say, of the major food banks in this country. It's one of the biggest charities also in the United States.
0: And they did a study
1: of what they called the Meal Gap, uh, just a couple of years ago, and the main argument that they made was that federal nutrition, nutrition programs um, were what we needed to do more of, we needed to spend more money on them. They didn't say a single word in their report about poverty or income equality. And when we found out that Walmart was their major, a major contributor, one of their, and on their board, and one of the biggest contributors to Feeding America, it began to make sense. That they aren't going to spend a lot of time talking about poverty and minimum wage and income equality. Um, too many food banks, both locally and nationally, are concerned about losing donors. Many of their donors are coming from the food industry. Many of those donors are also donating food, not just money, but they're donating food and they're donating a lot of really crappy food. And it's part of the reason that they re- often refuse to not refuse that crappy food. They take it, because if they don't take it, they're gonna be, their their donors will in effect reject them. Um, And so they're in a quandary, and that's part of where they have to begin to push back. Food bank donors and boards um, have, in some cases, actually either been silent or actively opposed minimum wage campaigns, campaigns to raise the minimum wage at local and state levels. Uh, this was particularly apparent in Seattle, Washington, which actually now has a $15 uh, minimum wage. But one of the strongest, um, outspoken opponents of raising the minimum wage was the largest food bank in Seattle.
0: <laughs>
1: food Research Action Center, which is the group that is the main is the main anti-hunger organization advocate in Washington, stresses nutrition program funding, not poverty reduction. Conagra. Uh, which sponsored their most recent report, paid for their most recent report. Uh, They and Tyson, among others, and um, Walmart have been their largest donors. FRAC has opposed innovations in the SNAP program. Uh, New York City, under Mayor Bloomberg, tried to get changes made in the uh, food stamp program to disallow the use of food stamps to buy sugary beverages. You may recall that. That uh, proposal, that request was denied by USDA. Frack opposed New York City's request, and the National School Food Association. You may have heard some of this recently. Have have been fighting against the implementation of better of the new regulations that improve the quality of food in our schools. Um, largely because for some some of them are technical reasons, and some they have do have some legitimate concerns. But they also have a major. Uh, uh, too many decisions get made about our food programs because the corporations that are sitting at the table, whether they're working with groups like National School Food Association, working with regulators at the USDA or elsewhere, influencing what food is going to show up on kids' plates. Because there's a lot at stake. There's billions of dollars of US expenditures being made on food. And if you know my frosted flakes are not going to make it to the table. I'm going to lose, you know, tens of millions of dollars in sales. So I have a lot at stake to make sure that certain foods are approved by the federal government. Um, so I want to. I'm not going to. I'm going to. I'm going to try to wrap this up. I know it's getting late, but um, you could just this last statement under another course. Uh, this is from a, a woman who heads up the Food Chain Workers Alliance. This is basically a you know, a labor advocacy group for uh, people working in the in the food industry. I think this this is a very telling comment. She says, anti-hunger groups could play a major role in supporting economic justice issues. The potential collective power to win social change would be incredible. I think about the number of people that I know who are volunteers, board members, staff members, and, of course, clients of just food banks. I founded a food bank in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, today, that food bank literally has tens of thousands of people on its mailing list and who are donors, who come to a hunger walk every year. They had done very little to try to mobilize and educate those people to take a position in favor of social and economic justice. Ninety-nine of percent of the promotion material that they put out is about how to get more food into the food bank. And it's also how to get more money to build a bigger food bank. That food bank has grown five or six times in its 30-year history. So my point is that we have these tremendous number of resources in terms of people and talent and skills. We have to mobilize them. We also have to begin to build uh, alliances between different groups, anti-hunger groups, for instance. Um, And we have to start talking about the root causes. We can't just be talking about hunger, some isolated event that we can resolve by just sending more food. We have to be out there in order to try to talk, get down to the root causes. So I'm going right to my recommendations at the end, where um, I think that funders are responsible and they need to actually start providing uh, funding that is going to support the development of grassroots leadership, so that you know the people who are vulnerable, the people who are Um, you know, the recipients and food stamps and participants in um, uh, food banks are actually going to be speaking up for themselves because they are going to be the ones that are going to make the change, ultimately. Not the, you know, the the white, light, bright activists like me. It's people like them who are going to have to start to speak up. Food assistance programs should be given more leeway for innovation. This is going back to the idea that you know, maybe food stamps shouldn't be used to um, buy sugary soft drinks. So at the very least, we should do some pilot projects to be able to test whether or not uh, this would be a good idea and make a difference in people's food choices. There needs to be a bigger alliance between labor and anti-hunger. Food banks have got to expand the healthy food options that they have available. Um, you know, if, if people are going to be using them, the food, they, they, should, they should be refusing the, the crappy food Excuse me for being, you know, not being too clinical there, but they have to to stop Mm -hmm. distributing that food and they have to do everything they can to get uh, healthy food to those folks. Um, um, Mazon, the Jewish response to hunger, is taking some leadership in this regard and is working closely with food banks around the country to try to encourage their increase of healthier food. Uh, Anti-hunger groups should actually take time to educate their own members Just as you are doing here, you're educating yourselves and others in your community about what the causes are, and I think that's very important. That's the kind of conversation we have to be having all the time. Anti-hunger groups have to start to key in on anti-poverty lobbying, not just lobbying for more money for food programs. Um, And that we also, lastly, need to be taking a much more comprehensive approach to our food system in the way that we have been doing with food security. And much of this can be done at the local level. There's so much exciting food work being done locally. I mean, I know more about your Plant a Row program, I've heard about that, but I mean, that's the kind of local action that people are taking that I think is making a difference. So I'm gonna close with just one thing, which I think is sort of my, is my illustration of the, of the perfect moment. If I could wave my magic wand and make things just the way Mark when wants them. Uh, this is the way I would do it. Now, I bet like a lot of you, um, I get letters from food banks asking for money every year. I say, I want, yeah, you know, we need more money for whatever, to, for our food bank. You know, every year we're saying, we're giving away more food because there's more demand. And I'm always getting these letters, all the time. I got really tired of them. I kept waiting for a certain letter that I wanted to receive, and I never got it. So I decided I was gonna write it myself. <laughs> i was going to write the letter to me, and it's, going to, and it's from a food bank director who I made up. But this is the way I'd like the letter to go and read. We have great news for you this year, Mr. Winnie. We at the food bank are happy to report that for the first time in our history, we have donated less food this year than the previous year. Why are we happy about that? Well, it's because of what happened to Sally Jones, a former client of the food bank. Sally is a single mother of two children. She works part-time at a nursing home and now takes regular classes at the community college to become a nurse. She is a former client of ours because the city passed a living wage law that requires employers to pay their workers $12.50 per hour. This this replaces the terribly unfair minimum wage of $7.85. The extra income, coupled with free daycare and health insurance she now receives, enables Sally to put food on the table without our help. Now, while we miss seeing Sally around the food bank, we do see her occasionally at our community garden, where she and her children are growing vegetables. Vegetables that, by the way, she learned to prepare in healthy and delicious ways at our Cooking with Community program. All of this progress, including the drop in pounds of food distributed, was made possible by donors like you, Mr. Winnie. Your hefty two-figure contribution, (laughs) when joined with those of somewhat more munificent donors, enabled the Food Bank to dedicate an ever greater share of its budget to its advocacy, training, and public policy work. This work persuaded our city council to pass a living wage ordinance and the state legislature to fully support Obamacare, as well as adequate funding for childcare and our community colleges. We also worked to ensure that Congress fully funded nutrition programs. But do you know what the best news is? It wasn't just our paid staff who worked for these changes. It was also our hundreds of volunteers and thousands of donors who wrote letters, made phone calls, and showed up in the busloads at public hearings. And you know who else showed up, Mr. Winnie? Sally Jones, because we helped her gain enough confidence to tell her story to our lawmakers, and to tell them that she only wanted a fair chance for herself and her children. She wanted a helping hand, not a handout. So please help us continue our work of empowering more and more of our clients and neighbors, so that we can distribute less food year after year. With appreciation, the executive director. And Mr. Winnie, if there's any way possible you could increase your donation this year, we would really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your attention.